Hey everybody, welcome to the Abstract Capable Communities podcast. Uh, this is Eric Veal and I'm here today with with a software developer and entrepreneur, Andrew Single. And I'm also here today with clinical psychologist and entrepreneur, Stephen Kubacki, a couple friends of mine from the Seattle area. And today the topic is uh, from APQC topic number two, which is the developing and managing products and services. And um, I'm especially interested in this topic. I've been a kind of product developer for probably the last two decades, and it's a passion of mine. Uh, Other topics and kind of features that we might get in today include chaos theory. So let's let's kick it off. Um, So the the first question of today is, and and relating to to how chaos theory might play into developing and managing products and, and services is, is how do small changes and decisions and uh, nuance ultimately wind up having a significant impact on uh, things down the road? Uh, and Andrew, on the on the way over, you and I were talking about. Yeah. Go ahead. So, well, I was thinking one immediate example that sprang to mind was somebody I knew who was running a uh, a blog network. They were WordPress blogs, and his users asked for the ability to install any piece of software, any plugin they wanted on their blog. And I cautioned him that this might not be such a good idea. He said that he had promised them this, that uh, he had to go through with it. And this ended up collapsing the system, basically, because when you allow anybody to install anything on that big, complicated system, it, uh, it just leads to cascading errors. And it, uh, it was costly for him to get that fixed. So a single feature for a single customer, kind of like he had a he had more there were value. Two or three people who asked him for that because they were coming from their own independent systems and they wanted to join his. So that ended up that that one choice, and it is literally just a one checkbox thing in the in the back end for that <laughs> system. It turned into uh, you know failure condition that required a complete new server. Uh, it. It was it was not pleasant for anyone involved, and so so is that just an example of bad decision making? We have we have other uh, examples where I, I suppose just other other product features. Another thing that we we were talking about on the way down is some of the Microsoft legacy that you see in the world now, like elements of DOS, elements of Windows NT, and just kind of old school things that Microsoft right. hasn't been able to get away from. Yeah, and so they have to make probably today like what might be like drastic decisions and changes such as buying LinkedIn and such as which maybe looks normal today but I think when they did it it was kind of it looked weird um, but you know buying LinkedIn or, or hiring the LinkedIn C, uh, CEO or turning him into their CTO but just but just like big bets and big changes that uh, <laughs> I don't know um, so, so other examples. So we're talking about our, our butterfly effect thing. Um, well, those are kind of far flung. But when yeah. you you look at things like how the the C drive has survived for such a long time in Microsoft operating systems, and it really doesn't make that much sense from a design perspective. It goes back to the fact that their first operating system was bought from the Seattle company, and it, it was originally called QDOS, which stood for Quick and Dirty Operating System. And it was just a, it, it was intended to be this uh, little thing that you could use on the basic personal computers of, of that day, and um, nobody predicted that one day it was going to run server farms and uh, you know large chunks of global commerce. And it, it's just been um, you know in some ways it's just been one patch layered on another since those days. And and you called that you call that a local optimum or a local maximum. A local maximum, it's, it's not exactly the same thing as a, a local maximum. You could say that the, the Windows system in some ways has been because it's something that so many people have just invested into. But a local maximum is what happens when you have a solution that it works for a time and place, but there's something better out there. Right. And usually, like, if you invest in a local maximum, it makes it very hard to leave for that uh, that true maximum, because when you when you leave your local maximum and pursue the tr- the you know something better, 
it's a, it may, it's a large sacrifice and a large risk. But if somebody else comes along and they can realize that greater maximum, that greater potential, then you're in danger of losing everything. And, and are these examples of, of phases and phase shifts? So that was another thing we spoke about on the yeah. way down is that, is that in, for, for its time, I imagine that DOS and QDOS and whatnot were innovative or good, good enough, exciting. You know, it was, it was probably like, mod, it was definitely, you know, modern computing technology at that time and popular. And of course it got replaced by first Mac and then Windows and so forth. And then we go to mobile. And so we can see the phase, phases shift over time. Mm -hmm. But certain things that p were perhaps our focus at one time or were valued at one time, such as DOS, and such as Microsoft's reliance on that as a central aspect to its computing program and strategy, mm -hmm. it's hard to shed those values or beliefs now because they're still good from one perspective. And so you can't cut off your nose to spite your face type of thing. We, Steve, last, on, the, on the last um, episode, we, we were talking about vision and strategy and authenticity right. and the need to be be consistent but in order to innovate and in order to change you do have to reinvent yourself every once in a while do you not or a corporation does that you you can't conti continue to rest on your laurels forever at some point or during some phases as the world has changed you need to innovate and change at least in business yeah i i, I think that's <clears throat> that's clearly true i think what's difficult is that uh, past behavior predicts future behavior. So the problem is, is once you go down a row and you're doing the same kind of behavior or the same uh, uh, kind of technology over and over, it's very difficult then to break that right. extremely. And uh, it takes a tremendous amount of will uh, and self-reflection on part of uh, the executive team uh, to do that. Sometimes the impetus for change comes from uh, uh, kind of a, a local person, you know, somebody who is in the trenches, who sees something that might be incredibly innovative. Uh, and, uh, and it's really up to the executive team to recognize that and to pursue a different course. Right. And Steve, how do you see ego playing into that? Because obviously that has a lot to do with it. When somebody feels that they're personally invested and their, their reputation is invested in a, a certain way of doing things, and then it becomes necessary to change. Well, I think, I think a person's ego has got to be fairly flexible. And I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people in executive positions uh, begin to believe uh, their own talk about right. themselves. Uh, and they begin, uh, you know, they get yeah, fairly inflexible, rigid, uh, you might say kind of narcissistic, uh, unable to really to handle criticism. Uh, and that eventually creates creates problems. I mean, you, you know, it was very clear when, uh, when GM almost went bankrupt. That's the exact example yeah. I was yeah. thinking about. Thinking, yeah, Obviously, yeah. they, they yeah. felt that the car market was a certain way, and it was going to be that way forever. And, uh, you know, they were totally unprepared to deal with the, the competition from the, the import car models. Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with compartmentalization, which kind of gets back into the into kind of chaos and nonlinear dynamics. Is that you need a very highly interactive um, feedback loops within within the management system or within the entire business, and unless this is complex and interactive, uh, new ideas and new information don't surface, uh, and you have to be able also for you know for upper management to actually be accountable, uh, and in the GM. Um, example, uh, they weren't accountable. And so there needs to be processes whereby executives are accountable, and there's also this highly interactive process with people below them. Yeah, I think expectations at a minimum change over time, and basically expectations, and that was something that we learned uh, in grad school and in organization change classes. Step one is the performance context. The question is, what are the expectations of pow the powerful and legitimate stakeholders? So there's, there's a lot to unpack there. First, what are their expectations? But really the question is more who. Who are the powerful and legitimate stakeholders? So like in the case of DOS or, or Microsoft and its legacy, the, the stakeholders or, or people who care about Microsoft 
have changed over time or are changing now. New people are coming in the market. There's, you know, there's just a new new generation, for example, that has a new set of expectations. But there's people that have been around that business from the beginning that care about it intimately and and who have have made their entire lives and careers working in that environment that that like all the legacy and like all the culture and artifacts and everything that they've created over time so they don't they don't they don't want to ever throw that have to throw that other that stuff under the bus and and so they they want it, it just seems like um, organizations I think Microsoft's an example just where they they build up inertia and baggage and legacy that prevents them from being flexible now or meeting the market now because they just have all these kind of stakeholders and hangers on and they can't be the flexible organization that they need to be to serve the market now. And I'm not saying Microsoft's failing. Well, they've, they've always, uh, one of their core virtues has always been backwards compatibility. And that's earned them a very faithful market of people who are still using like uh, pieces of hardware that depend on Windows XP and a lot of people who are still using these legacy products, the problem is that uh, they're still burdened with supporting them. The US, yep. A lot of the U.S. government still uses XP, mm -hmm. and Microsoft has carved out special yep. exceptions in its policies just for them. But uh, eventually, they're going to have to move forward, and you know, it's totally, uh, it's a very real possibility they'll choose it to do to choose to do that with something other than Microsoft technology. Well, and, and they have moved forward in a lot of ways, right? So I think parts of their business they have, for example, so um, I've worked in the Microsoft Office organization within the last few years, and they're clearly on a path there going from packaged products and just Microsoft Office 95 coming in a box or even 2005 coming in a box that you'd just go buy, pick up at Best Buy or at your local local uh, you know store, and, and so, for example, as they pivot into the cloud and you start to see things online, so you, you're not running your software on-premise or on your local machine and you're not really the one running it, you don't run it for yourself, Microsoft runs it for you in the cloud. And so as they pivoted into that world and the cloud market, for example, and software as a service that they then get to make the decisions about what they will and won't give you, but that creates a huge rub with certain institutions that are regulated or required, for example, to run their own software local, locally and on-premise so that they can secure, secure their own fate. So they have to bet on Microsoft and Microsoft technology and then trust that Microsoft will continue to provide the software to the level of quality that they need to run their businesses. Yeah, so a lot of the legacies uh, are going to be faced with that choice. And many of the people who are now using XP, they're, they're going to have to move to something else at some point. And it's, uh, Microsoft doesn't right now have the hole on the cloud, on the cloud computing and the cloud services that it did on the desktop, so that's where the question. And I, and I think, for example, because they have that legacy, right? They have a bunch of other things that they need to consider, and they have a bunch of other stakeholders and expectations on them, other than their cloud strategy. And even though it's been, you know, many years now that they've been all in on the cloud, they still have all this legacy and migration stuff that they have to do to bring everybody up to speed. And and to your point, I think that's an example of. Pretty much anybody that starts in some phase or context that that ultimately dies or goes away, uh, you know, the two examples would be non-graphical user interfaces, for example, um, on-premise software, and, and these kinds of things. That that now, as as the cloud and mobile rise, and and people who are native to cloud and mobile and just start their businesses from that context natively. And maybe LinkedIn's an example, for example, that gets bought by Microsoft and then just becomes the Microsoft strategy. Yeah. Well, I don't know that either of those things are gone, especially not non-graphical interfaces. Well, that's true. Anyone who does technical stuff that's true. is going all to the be using bash, one all the time. Bash. Yeah. Gotcha. So what, what else within our, our topic here about either chaos theory or kind of butterf butterfly effects, tipping points within business? Well, I, you know, yeah. I think you can't, have the kind of dynamic, complex interactions within a company uh, if there's a lot of compartmentalization that goes, that goes on. Mm. People are naturally want to eliminate conflict. That's what most, most humans cannot handle conflict, not too much of it. And our tendency for most people is to reduce conflict. 
So the problem with that, though, is as you reduce conflict, you, you have people join you who think more like you. You have that kind of in-group thinking. And that leads to further politics and compartmentalizations within organizations that then lead to poor decisions. Uh, and you know, how do you stop that, I think, is very, very difficult, because you need people at the top who are capable of handling tremendous conflict, are open to conflict, are open to disagreement, uh, and, 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 makes, and makes disagreement a virtue. Uh, and that's that's very that takes a certain kind of person to do that, right? And also to be transparent. Transparency is a very important part of a good organization that leads to healthy conflict and disagreement. Mm. And what happens in oftentimes in organizations is transparency may be there to begin with, but it slowly disappears because the, the people have this tendency to pull be pulled towards less and less conflict. Yeah. Well, I've heard that an old adage in the film industry is that very happy crews tend to produce very bland films. Yes. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, I, I have a radical idea. I mean, I'm sure it'll never happen, but probably what would be a good thing is if there was a random elimination of people in a company. Yeah. Like every five years, you know, a certain number of execs, a certain number of just middle management. They're just, it's just random. It doesn't literally matter random. what you did or how yeah. good you were, because the problem with... You know, this ha- I, I, have, I see a lot of clients at Microsoft, and, you know, a, a problem with, with you know, uh, deciding who should leave and who should stay, you know, when, when there's uh, evaluate, yearly evaluations is oftentimes they are very political. People pick the people who are going to support them. Yeah. Sometimes the best people get are, are axed mm. uh, instead of the people who should be axed. And right. the only way around that that I can think of is just random uh, elimination. Is, is that an acknowledgement that, it's better if people do think that they're playing a game and that there is necessary risk. So if people are lulled into a sense of security and and uh, seduced by success, uh, Bob Herbold is an old CE, COO, I think, of Microsoft that wrote a book called Seduced by Success. I've seen him speak. And, and I, I see this in other institutions that have kind of risen rapidly and, and become extremely wealthy and confident and, and everybody feels <laughs> like their jobs are secure. I think when you have that baggage of, of security and and your your Maslow uh, hierarchy you know doesn't really matter to you and just things are good you probably think a lot less creatively you're a little more fat and happy mm-hmm. and the wor- the truth is that the world is going on around you and is literally trying to take you out and kill you most likely at least in business well, that's a pretty hostile perspective. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, that definitely happens in all yeah. arenas, yeah. really. I kind of liken it to a gravity well effect. It's as if organizations that grow large and successful, they have their own gravity. And inside that gravity field, it's like everything is distorted. You know, I kind of liken the whole Bay Area to that. I mean, in the Bay Area, reality is not, it's not the same reality here. And even here, reality is kind of different from other places. But, uh, you know, in the Bay Area, it's specially pronounced. And it's kind of like how the Hubble telescope was such a big leap for astronomy because to see the stars clearly, you have to be outside the Earth's gravity. When you're down here, the, the perception gets distorted. And that's what leads to things like, like GM, like we were talking about, and people thinking that uh, they're immune from failure. I mean, somebody pointed out that all the executives in Microsoft, uh, I think this was a few years ago. I don't know if it's changed much, but... All of them, like many, had come up with the company, or they had joined the company earlier, and they never, and they had no experience of working in a business where failure was a real possibility. So that breeds, uh, you know, certain deficiencies in thinking. And yeah. there's the fear of failure too. Sure. So it's not just that you feel secure, but also if you take any risks. Right then, you know, that could get you in trouble. You could lose your job. Right, if there's edges on either side. winning streak, you don't want to be the person who blows it, and that could lead you to exactly the decisions that cause that to happen. Exactly. Right. But, but there's, there's edges on either side is kind of what we're saying there to summarize, is that, is that there's the lulled into complacency context where you're fat and happy and lazy and essentially doing nothing, for example, and in that way you have perhaps like a kind of dead and bloated organization and then on the flip side of it, and I don't know if startups are perfect examples of this, but definitely, you know, struggling entrepreneurs with, uh, you know, months months of runway left before they have to go try to get a job or whatever, who are all in betting on their one idea. 
and and that's their only plan. I really have to think that those are two kind of edges of the same spectrum, and and then there's a bunch of bunch in the middle. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I'd add that with being bloated that. Uh, is a lot of bureaucracy that develops. Yeah. So oftentimes these people who seem pretty secure have created lots of things to do. They're, they're oftentimes very busy, maybe mm -hmm. even extremely busy, doing all kinds of things and yeah. having people do all kinds of things. But right. what's being done doesn't really lead anywhere. It doesn't right. lead to real innovation, doesn't lead to change. And, and a system becomes more and more bureaucratic. Yeah it becomes less and less flexible to change. Non-value added, more waste. There's just, the yeah, exactly, the bloating is, is waste, to use right. lean terminology, is, is, um, there's, and there's types of waste. Right. And, uh, but I think the people in there, yeah. if you would ask them, they, they're actually very busy. They're working hard. Sure. They're doing their thing. They're not just yeah. sitting on their butts. They're, you know. And there are exceptions to that, right? I mean, I think we can all tell stories, not that we need to go into those details, but, you know, certain organizations whose names I won't, um, name, but, you know, I think people, for example, have the, you know, absolutely, there's a, a lot of people that think that the gov government is an example of that, or just, you know, I think there's pretty much the ins entire, like, right-wing and conservatives, and maybe we save this for for uh, for the next little segment of the show here, but but the, as, as far as per perceiving a benefit of lean, government, for example, and that's not the purpose of this podcast, but um, so just summarizing a little bit on our, on our first section here. So we're, we're talking about uh, developing and managing products and services. Uh, we've given some examples of features, um, for example, within Microsoft and, and behaviors that do and don't promote that. And so we're going to take a quick little break here and come back and we'll continue to talk about APQC uh, topic number two, which is developing and managing products and services. This episode of the Apps Check Capable Communities podcast is brought to you by C-Town Media, creating movements to make impact. If you are a business or individual who has a message to get out there, let C-Town Media help. They provide recording and podcasting services from beginning to end, podcast setup, recording, engineering, production, and distribution. They also offer small business marketing and branding consulting, as well as real estate industry-specific consulting and training. To learn more, visit ctownmedia appscheck that's S-E-A hyphen townmedia.com slash appscheck. Hello, everyone. This is Andrew Sengel bringing back the Appscheck Cable Communities podcast. So I'm starting this segment. Uh, this is my first time here. It's been great to join you all. And I uh, had some questions for Eric. So we discussed this, as you mentioned, on the way down here. Uh, one thing I was interested in was can you think of any cases where you inherited a significant mess you had to clean up from somebody else, uh, a legacy that you had to deal with in product or service? Sure. Uh, so one example for me is uh, one of my first jobs out of college was at Siemens Ultrasound Division, to be really specific. And uh, they had just acquired the leading ultrasound brand in the United States, and that was called Accuson, and they were, they were going through a merger of those two companies. And so Siemens was, although um, one of the larger, largest companies in the world, it was an acquisition for them where they wanted to further invest in ultrasound technology. So they bought the leading brand, literally, just bought them. And GE had previously turned down the purchase because they knew that Accuson had a very strong culture, more of a, they were a Bay Area company, definitely not German, definitely not uh, kind of driving and, um, you know, just culturally very, very different. So you had, you had two things there. You had, you had innovation kind of happening from a grassroots and bottoms up perspective. And that was from Accuson out of the Bay Area and Silicon Valley basically. And then, and then you had the huge German behemoth that acquired them and was essentially, I don't know if eating their lunch is a word for it, but the, but the, technology and creativity and values of the little guy was literally being consumed on a day-over-day -day basis by the parent company. And so my job there was, uh, or my first big opportunity there that was kind of a mess and complicated and difficult was, uh, so I, I got hired to build their intranet. Right. And I, I asked them in the beginning, um, 
what what is what what would your intranet be or what is it? And they said we don't know. That's why we're hiring you. They didn't have one before you showed up. Not really. So this is like so that was 2000. the way that that was the way of Siemens had of doing business. This was their strategy, right? So so they were investing in web-based technology, for example, and hiring me, who also had kind of a Silicon Valley flair. Like I literally came from a my own dot-com startup and building my own communities and databases and so forth. So all I knew was essentially how to be creative and make databases and websites and whatnot. And and I too was being eaten by the large Siemens monster. Right. And and so my my job there and my success became their employee training program at some point, which was what is all of our documentation and knowledge holistically, both from the Siemens side and from the Accuson side? All that stuff needs to get merged basically into a set of, of documents that, that everybody shares and agrees that that's their quality system. Right. So that's step one, and they did that. Step two is, well, now that we have that and we have change control on that, and as we improve that and, and change and adjust things within our organization, we need to be able to communicate those things, those, those changes to people to keep them up to speed with what we're, what we're doing. Right. And so... To answer your question, um, that was an interesting experience for me because I learned that to like get in and fit in, in inside of a real large organization and be innovative, I had to entirely change my worldview and almost like beliefs and values in order to make that fit. Right. And so I think that's an example, not bragging, but of just agility or changing in mindset you could call it a sellout is kind of the flip yeah. side to it right where i i sold out and figured out how to use my skill how, how did you sell out well i sold out for money well i know but how did you did you i mean you yeah had what two was the very, change in values yeah. that happened yeah you had two very different cultures here well i had to learn how to be innovative inside of that culture so in the beginning it was it was me as like a 23 year old kid that just like knew how to be innovative pretty much like in the b2c type of world like in just a total consumer context and like my college website that i produced as the ceo of of uh, collegeunderground.com was school food stuff to do party best and worst of college and so it was all just fun and we were playing on the internet much like we anybody would play on facebook or twitter today and i had to go into the siemens corporation and instead of being able to make things very fun and in the beginning it was in some ways driven by hr and oh we'll write biographies about people and we can do photography and it all felt like this fake news or fake junk that I was asked to produce and I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. So to me, the place that I found value was in helping people that had pain in order to uh, align their values with the organization and figure out what they needed to do to comply and use these modern systems. So the stuff they wanted to, you to create was propaganda, more or less. In the beginning, yeah, that's totally then, what they wanted. And then you and then you learn to deal with people where they were and address yeah. what they actually need. Exactly. So I, I guess I, re, I refused to create the propaganda, but I, f I found the types of propaganda that I thought were valuable. So in their quality management system, it was it was their policies, the basic things like vision, mission, values, po their policies. Like, and I got in their leadership development program as well, so I knew more within that company than just ultrasound division. I knew what Siemens in total was, which is like the German General Electric. So, so even just within, within Siemens Medical, of which ultrasound was a part, there was uh, both the hospital side and then the modalities, so CT, MRAX, all these different uh, medical devices that Siemens made. But it, anyway, so their, their company wound up being extremely fascinating, and it was a great learning experience for me. But yeah. Of course, I had to give up a lot to fit into the culture and go from like a 23-year-old kid who just, you know, didn't care about much besides party stories and who was the best and worst professor or what was the best and worst bathroom at, at uh, you know, in Bellingham yeah. to um, more serious and probably like mundane, boring things, but to me also probably more exciting in many ways, like changing healthcare. Right. Does that answer your question? Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, 
So I, yeah, so um, back to the developing and managing products and services piece, what are, what are the other kind of challenges we see people facing today? So I, I told the story, my story there about Siemens of trying to be innovative in, inside a, I suppose it is an innovative culture, but a very differently innovative culture. Like you can innovate at a high level and at a global or aggregate scale. Yeah. Like, for example, maybe the, the um, federal government is, is innovating right now. Maybe Donald Trump is being extremely innovative with his policies and, and um, you know, changes that he's implementing, and, and those will have wonderful consequences. I know many people disagree with that, and they're trying to innovate in an opposite direction. Yeah. So you have competing forces of innovation. And so you have people that are developing products in one direction and people that are developing products in another direction. Well, what I see is innovation, a lot of it in how entities connect with the public because there has been a standard way for uh, government and for other large established uh, entities to, to deal with the public in the past. And that is being uh, disrupted in an incredible way by uh, what's just happened in the last year. I mean, Trump is the first Twitter president. FDR had his fireside chats. Now Trump has his his fireside tweets. And now, uh, now we've we've just now he's he's basically bypassing the media. So and they their confidence has dropped rock bottom levels. And uh, it's uh, it really is kind of a new world in that regard. So it's very much a disruption of the traditional uh, framework that uh, you know the the traditional communication that flows from these these large uh, established groups to the, the public? Well, the, the question's about innovation and change. I, I do agree with you 100%. I think that when you develop, and when, in particular, when you develop a new product or service or just take any product or service and you're developing it, and it could be the government, it could be some, you know, dinner that you're going to cook tonight at micro or macro levels, you're ultimately, you know, people are ultimately trying to develop things. They're trying to change and improve things. I think that people wouldn't be there otherwise if, if it wasn't their intention to develop them literally. Mm -hmm. I think people, people see or would perceive some people's acts of development, like Trump on, on the government, as not developing per se, but harming. And so there's just different perspectives of, of benefits and value. And then there's a question about what are, what is the substance that we're developing? Are we developing value? Probably. Mm -hmm. And, but what are the different things that people value and not everybody necessarily values the same thing. So in business, you have to pick your values and pick your vision, pick your mission and go forth on that. And, and be a buccaneer against people that are trying yeah, to well, hold you back. I don't, I don't know if everyone wants to develop in organizations, especially large ones, uh, as we were talking about before. People and groups tend to, once they become established, tend to work for their own preservation and furtherance. And that's what happens at a lot of companies that develop an institutional inertia. What's well, the opposite word of development, though? So, like, I, I agree with your point, but but if if some people are developing and it's their intention I would say to literally stasis. build, stasis. their objective, like you, you know, you stasis. can develop you can develop in one direction or another direction, but yeah. some just want to stay where they are, <laughs> and that's what happens in in uh, organizations that are very bureaucratic. Even when, as Steve said, everybody is doing something, and they're sure that it's a very important thing. But uh, in organizations that become bureaucratic, these processes often arise just to just to preserve the system, and when it uh, and that can you know it can cause the organization to become moribund and to to stop moving in any direction. But for the people who do that, it uh, it appears that they are working to preserve and further their own uh, their own interest. Is, is developing also an act of reducing entropy? So, for example, I'm just thinking about the word. I've never actually thought about it. But to, like, devalue and to destruct and whatnot is a, a negative act, hypothetically. To develop, however, I see it as building in an upward type of motion. Well, you could say death is a part of life, basically. I mean, when you talk about organizations that become bloated, like think about how, um, 
you know, plants dying and, uh, you know, becoming compost and feeding the next generation of plants is part of the natural cycle. And in some places, the natural cycle includes things like wildfires. And if you disrupt that cycle, if you, if you stop, if you put out fires and, uh, you know, say because there's a, a ritzy housing development in the area, that eventually leads to a, a big fire that is uh, uncontrollable. So... Yeah, I, I think the more centralized uh, the organization is, and the more and the larger that central, you know, the organization is with that central, with with being centralized, uh, then the less flexible it is, less adaptable it is, and the more it's going to move in that moribund way. I think when you can have the smaller your organization, the more decentralized it is. That means the more feedback there is within the system. Uh, that, that works a lot better. I, I think a company like, for example, General Electric uh, seems to have this knack of creating new companies within itself. So you create these new emerging products and you don't make it, you don't keep it part of the old company, you actually separate it mm -hmm. so that it can evolve yeah. and, and have its own mission and have people who are passionate about it. And I think when you have a system a little bit more like traditional Boeing or Microsoft, where everything is con all in this one monolithic organization, it's very difficult to create these nascent, innovative uh, pockets yeah. that can evolve. Right. So there, there's there's two things. I, I agree with the points that are, are made. I think uh, the words that are coming to my mind are, so for example, um, incubators, I'm talking about business incubation, for example, but and it, but it really is, a, we're talking about life ultimately, but you have incubators, you have accelerators, um, and these are just two facets of business now, like Y Combinator's the, the big kind of buzzword in, in accelerators and whatnot. But, but these kinds of organizations where their purpose is to take nascent people or nascent ideas or what have you and provide them with the, and nurturing is the other word I was looking for there, is, you know, ultimately, there's some people, and people know this in sales as well, like I know it, for example, is there's some, re and this is the development word, is if you want to literally grow things, you know that you need to nurture them, and you need to guide them, and you need to enable them, or there's a whole set of, like, non-coercive verbs that you're using to let things be, emerge as they are, or as they can be, and so you're you're enabling, and then there's a whole other set of forces that don't even seem really applicable, but they're frequent of control and coercion and, and closure to, to fend off and end off chaos and entropy because people see the world negatively, perhaps, and think that it needs controls and regulations and corners and to kind of cut the edges and prune the hedge because it's getting out of touch. So you want a little bit of chaos. Control freaks. Only a little? Well, maybe a lot. <laughs> well, entropy is really part of any process, and you could say that the problem with, uh, with bloat is that organizations, uh, they learn to control it, but maybe not for the best, because entropy is the ultimate feedback that you were talking about. And, uh, well, you suggested a very direct form of entropy where people get randomly removed from uh, an organization. I don't know if that's the best idea, but it definitely is a way of... Uh, of making entropy a real thing for... Uh, Why do you say entropy is feedback? Well, entropy is the most universal kind of feedback because everything experiences it in one way or another. I see that as context. I don't see it as feedback. I see that as, like, truth. I, th I feel like entropy is just the reality that, that there is decay and, and uh, uh, that, that things are accelerating and becoming more expansive and interesting over time, for example. Right. I think that's the context. I don't think that's feedback. I think feedback is 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 a, a learned uh, response of like an interaction between something and the context or and reality right. that there's something that it, it something occurred, like a process, an event took place, and then there was some change or interaction and and that was either a positive or negative thing that, that led it on a path up or a path down, right? depending on what's good and what's up and what's down. So, so I mean, I think the conversation's interesting in the sense, I mean, you're talking kind of entropy and, and you know, is it context? Is it, uh, what was the? Feedback. Feedback. Um, 
because I mean, essentially, it's the environment we're all part of, right? We, we, you can do things that will increase and 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 uh, you know the decay, or th- but we're all really fighting it. I mean, that's really what we're doing is we're trying to avoid death, things breaking down, cars need fixed, you know, businesses they're constantly heading towards, <laughs> you know, uh, destruction, so to speak, you know, uh, chaos. Um, a little earlier, you, know, you guys were talking, and, and it seems like the the context is really, you know, like we're talking progression versus regression, you know, and and it's interesting because, you know, it, I mean, at least in the context of uh, of politics, you know, but people are trying to do what they believe is right based on their worldview, values, you know, et cetera. And I think that's the same in, in business. Um, it, it, but there almost seems like the social value of change is good, period. Well, I mean, at some point, like, you kind of hit, like, you can't get any better in the the skills given, the context, yada, yada, you know. And, and But as we know, everything's changing at much rapid, much much quicker rate than before. And so, like, where maybe a company could stay on top for 20 years and not change anything, yeah. that time period is, is, is shrinking. Where right. I think naively, I don't believe that there's limits. I think that's my personal philosophy is that they're really, sh- we, like, as humans, we really, all, of course, so... I, I can contradict myself, I think, quite easily. I mean, we talked last time in the vision and strategy session about if you're going to fail. The question was, if you're going to fail, do you want to fail fast? Well, it depends on you don't want to fail fast if you're driving your car 60 miles an hour into a brick wall. Like, that's not a time when you want to fail at crashing your car. So so there's I think there's context and scenarios where... Um, what I was going to react to is is the expanding and contracting aspect is I think sometimes you do need to retract, right? That's a, a skill that you need to shrink or, for example, for the purposes of survival or future orientation is you need to kind of go back into strategic mode or or go go hide for a little while and, and recollect your thoughts, for example. And so I I, I guess I kind of assume that beings or entities or whatever are experiencing the world and and those things are either helping them succeed on their mission whatever it might be or they're or they're not and yeah. it's it's a dynamic process yeah i think what you're i, I just wanted to add what uh, christian mentioned the word progression and, and i think what we're, we're we're kind of talking about this kind of pessimistically kind of with this entropy thing and everything's running down and and in, uh, in kind of a nonlinear perspective, uh, the opposite of entropy is negentropy, that systems are constantly building and getting larger. And if you look at the you know, human civilization, we are a perfect example of negentropy. Yeah, people are dying, businesses disappear, you know, civilizations disappear, but as time goes on, we are getting bigger and bigger right. and more and more complex, and there's more and more knowledge. So even though there is an entropy that is happening, there's also a countervailing force right, right. of negentropy where our organizations are very self-adaptive and yeah. changing and actually progressing, I think, is what, what Christian for said. For every action, there's yeah. an equal and opposite well, reaction. Well, I would say even more so. I would say it's not even just equal. I would say we are that negentropy is what is uh, is more prominent than than entropy well, and a, we look at human systems that's a very positive positive thought let's let's take a quick pause we're we're actually kind of to our break here but uh, great great comments on on uh, developing and managing products and services uh, we'll be right back this episode of the AppsJack capable communities podcast is brought to you by carbon black defense Computer antivirus and malware protection for your individual or business needs. All right, this is Eric Veal. We're back with the AppsJack Capable Communities podcast. Today we're talking about developing and managing products and services. And uh, during the break, we were trying to select what we were going to talk about towards the end here. And we selected uh, planning, design and planning. I think planning sounds extremely boring. I can't imagine a more boring verb than planning. You're not doing, you're just thinking about doing, and it's a very, very meta concept. I think that said, it's it's an essential skill and aspect and part of life or uh, success, perhaps, that we really do need to invest quite a bit of time in some pre-facto 
phase where we're where we're thinking about what we're going to do and then we go do it and then we probably have some post facto phase where we we uh, do an after action review and we think about so there, there's a way to learn I think is the point and so when we think about good design and and uh, quality planning that actually helps and is useful how much planning do are, are you guys here as my guests um, proponents of planning are you proponents of action and if you're proponents of action are you also proponents of learning from the actions you took or are we on a cascade well, of disaster me, planning is something uh, I suppose maybe I don't find boring when I'm starting something it's probably the part of the process I look forward to the least because it's uh, I just have this need to to go over things again and again until I can figure out the right way to go forward and that's why I think some of my projects have gone as well as they have. I mean, for me, planning really is kind of a way of life because my last two major projects have been things that I envisioned some years before they came into being. The Scenario Engine in particular uh, was first envisioned about eight years ago, and it wasn't until a couple years ago that it really uh, came into being. And it's something that I just thought about from time to time, uh, not knowing yet how I would actualize it. But a lot of uh, ideas were emerged and then uh, discarded during that time. But did you ever plan it? I, I'll bet you didn't. I bet you never planned it. I bet you just had to keep on working on it and you had to keep on iterating on it. And I suppose you planned each of those little like micro phases or whatever, like you had to. There was a plan yeah. at each stage of development yeah. where I had an idea of how it should be and how it should work. Yeah. And then um, those plans had to be discarded in turn. And most of the things that I do well, I find, they have to be rebuilt two or three times before they, uh, they really come into their own as designs. But uh, planning is, it's just, uh, it's, it's something that always has to be there. It always has to happen. And while it's, it's uncomfortable, it's, uh, like Steve said, it's, it's a discomfort that you have to go through that's, that's part of, uh, you know, being healthy as a person or as an organization. And organization, and when you manage to push that discomfort out of your life, that's often a sign that you're headed for a disaster in the end. So, so the, dim, the dimming cycle, I, I guess I don't, I don't want to over... Uh, excite ourselves on planning specifically. Again, I, I guess I still believe that it's really boring. I know we have to do it, but I think it's a part of a cycle. It's a it's a step in a in a cycle. So like de the dimming cycle, for example, and there's a lot of other ones, but the dimming cycle is plan, plan it, do it, check what you did, which is to say learn and verify against what your expectations were initially. And then, and then act or adjust based on that. And the lean cycles are really based on that basically as well. Yeah. But I think if you, if you sub-optimize on one of those processes and say that like planning is the number one thing, then I think you're totally forgetting about, well, the, fa the phase after planning is you're going to do something, maybe, or not. Yeah. And, and then you're going to learn from what you did, and then you got to adjust accordingly. I think people need to have that mindset, I think, at a minimum of, of systems, or of a life cycle rather than just like a phase or a thing? In my case, I'm doing multiple things at once usually. When the, uh, like I said, when the scenario concept was incubating, I was working on all sorts of other stuff. Yeah. And then uh, other, you know, there were other, uh, there were ideas that came up for new scenario features and things yeah. while other stuff was going on. So I think it's helpful to be in that uh, multi-phase state where you've got some things that you're working on, you know, you're, you've got yeah. your elbows up to and then other things that are are just ideas but a few pots on the stove and things in different phases right yeah. like i think you yeah. need to gain expertise in all of the phases and stages of of death or or of failure and killing things off and creating new things i think you do have to have that balanced view across the portfolio or yeah. you know some set of projects because if you're all in on one and only one thing and the only way that you can learn is through that one and only you just carry all of the risk there yeah and i think it's not fun it becomes obsessive or well, it gets, problematic it gets to be kind of linear. i think what andrew is saying is that he enjoys doing very linear things at times the planning but he also enjoys emergent properties so there's sometimes there's new ideas there's things that don't work 
as you try to implement them and new new ideas and new perspectives emerge. So you have both a linear right. and nonlinear intertwining sure. uh, that's going on. Yeah. And I think you need both. I think if you just do the, I mean, there are some people who are just pretty obsessive compulsive and just enjoy planning. They're very linear and, and they do that fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and there are people who are extremely nonlinear, right. are highly creative, but right. they can't get much done because they can't get a linear plan together. And, that gets... and, and, and people who seem to be successful, I think, in business have some combination of the two, one a little stronger, maybe one a little weaker, but you need the two in order to get stuff done. And that gets into teams and team dynamics, I think, yeah. as well, as like your strength might be in planning specifically, and somebody could just spend all of their day planning and that's what they love and that's what they're excellent at and they right. can just do that day in and day out and and their customers uh, reap the benefits of their wonderful plans and somebody else is, has a bias for action and wants right. to do it and that's great. But the bias in most organizations is to move more and more towards planning, more and more towards linear bureaucratic systems like we've been talking and, about. Yeah. So how do you offset that? How do you offset the natural tendency towards linearity, towards bureaucracy, towards lack of innovation. How do you do that? That's well, what I don't know. design don't methodologies know. like Scrum and Agile have arisen from an attempt to do that. And uh, the funny thing is when I'm talking to people about those, how bureaucratic they sometimes are with Scrum and Agile and ask about, oh, vocabulary questions and how does this part of the process work? And... Uh, I mean, really goes to show how uh, organization can defeat the purpose of such things. But it's uh, it's just a, it's one of those endless struggles. I think the the gravity well effect is always going to be there when you get as you get larger. People's perception will become limited by the by that uh, that force. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think planning's that the real the real clincher with it is that. How, how effective your planning is really depends on your experience with what you're trying to plan. Because, like, if you're new to something, you're going to try to plan it, but you're not going to know what questions you're supposed to be asking, what has to happen. So there's going to be maybe some ineffective planning. You're going to implement. You're going to go back to drawing board. You're going to be in that cycle. Um, in, in my industry, you know, in, in real estate, like, the, the tendency is the opposite because planning isn't sexy. It's not interesting. It's not fun. But it's probably one, one of the most important aspects of it. And... And so action is much more interesting, but it's going to cost you a lot more. It's going to take a lot more time. There's going to be a lot more, you know, going back to the drawing board as opposed to if you just planned it ahead of time, you'd get to your goal much faster. Yeah, um, I think I think hindsight's twenty twenty, and I think um, in a in a planning sense, you can you in planning and in in creativity, you can be creative in the design phase of what you're gonna do. And you can think of things out of the box and you, you can create features and, and aspects and excitement stuff that you build into the actual product or project or what have you. And then when you go and actually implement that thing, you have those things built in. And then I think that's another part of the agile mindset is like once you're there delivering and things don't go to plan, if you're somebody that just melts down and freaks out and, and can't bounce or whatever, if things aren't going your way or to plan or whatever and you just freak out, that's also not a great uh, asset to you then. Right. I, mean, I think it's, a, it's, it's, like Steve said, it's this balancing act depending on your skills and, and experience. Because, I mean, you could, you know, plan so much you never actually accomplish anything because you'd never get to the action stage of it, the implementation. Yeah. Right. Or you could just be an action person, never plan, and your life and business and whatever else is just chaos. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, beginning of a business oftentimes is more innovative and nonlinear and there has to be then an emphasis on the linearity in order to get it out. Yeah. And the opposite is true of older companies. Yeah. Uh, things have become a little too linear, too planned, and how do you bring those nonlinear processes back? I think that's why companies sometimes uh, have uh, kind of odd uh, seminars where you just do brainstorming or you do something that's pretty different from what you normally do. It, you might think of it as a not doing, that you, you engage in behaviors, uh, or you do things that don't necessarily fit in with what, what it is that you normally do in order to break that linear set. Right. And I think it's hard, in, and I think Google does something like that. I think they set aside, I don't know, a certain percentage. Yeah, 20% of the, 20% of the yeah, to of, work on their own projects. Right, to work, yeah. and I think that's a way to try to get mm -hmm. at this, um, to create a, a, an actual institution within yeah. the organization True. or a structure 
for yeah. this kind of innovative, nonlinear thinking. And that's just a taste of it, though, I think, in the case of, of Google, for example, is they only go in 20%, right? So what, what's wrong with 50%, for example? If, if we're truly trying to create balanced organizations, then, then why aren't we designing them in that way? And if we think of Google as being this, like, really innovative, and that's, like, t you know, 10, 20, 15 years old or whatever since when Google started doing that practice, but... Are organizations today ready for that kind of innovation? Or, or I mean, we see things now in organizations where uh, the it's like thirty-hour work week, or or like un, you can take unlimited time off, unlimited vacations, or whatever. Some these are the policies of some organizations, and and then I but I think it's also obviously just a weeding out tool of people that abuse the system, and so well clearly you don't care, and bye bye. You you know yeah we we give you enough rope to hang you. Bye bye. I don't know. I think it's an interesting question. Yeah. I mean, do you, where where is the where is the line? Where do you draw it? I think right. probably has to do to some degree with uh, you know, how much revenue streams you have. I mean, you know, you need you need to be making yeah. some money. Your your product has to be successful. Sure. So there's probably you know that that's going to be one of the limitations. Yeah. I, I guess if you have a product that's incredibly successful where you're bringing in tremendous amounts of revenue, then you could probably devote a, a lot more right. percentage of people's time. And, and I think the dimension there is, is uh, flex flexibility on one side, being flexible. And, and so we have two, th so we already talked about linear and nonlinear, and I'm, I'm trying to just add to that idea, is that similarly you have these other uh, opposites like fle flexibility and control. So as a leader or owner of a new organization who maybe doesn't have a ton of money or what have you, you might be fairly controlling and fairly specific about what you do and how you instruct people on things. And you're, you're not very flexible, but you can still lead in a way, I think, where you are extremely clear with the rules and the expectations, but you still uh, create a platform or environment for people to be creative and successful. Um, so I, I'm just trying to paint the picture here. So kind of yin and yang is something that we've spoken about in the past as well. And there's, so you have kind of opposites, but then each of the opposites have something from the other side within them. So it is this dynamic and kind of looping system. I don't you know how the order and chaos are similar. Each contains the seed of its opposite. Yeah. The more orderly the tr you try to make things, as in organizations with a lot of bureaucracy, the bureaucracy often breeds a chaos of itself, and in conditions we consider to be highly chaotic, there's often a strange order. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, that is pretty interesting. So, so back to our topic, just trying to get back uh, framed here. So we talked about design a little bit. Uh, we're talking about planning a little bit and, and kind of the import of planning Overall, we're trying to help our audience uh, think about what they could do in their daily lives to be more be more innovative, create and manage better products and services. What are some other tips well, and tricks? Well, I mean, uh, one of the things I have my clients do, this may sound a little silly, uh, is I, I have them practice a method I call not doing. Uh, and uh, it, you can do it in very little ways, little behavior. So and if you're a guy, you people usually when they shave, they have a certain routine when they shave. They start on the right or left side, or they start with, you know, whatever. They start on some side. So you shave differently. You know, you 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 start breaking up the habits, and that's one of the that's what brings, uh, you know, what we're talking about what stops change in in organizations is things become habitual. They're on automatic pilot. We lose our sense of awareness. So if you, as a person, can begin to just do little things like the way you shave, you know, your routine and how you wash yourself in the shower. Maybe you wash your hair first and then your feet. You know, maybe you should start with your feet first and then your hair. Again, it sounds like little things, but you become aware of all the little decisions you're making all the time. And we're constantly making zillions of decisions, but we're not aware of them. We're, they're on automatic pilot. So you can start becoming aware of these. That can then cascade to even larger changes. And what are, what are the benefits or examples of that? So I totally get it. I mean, it makes sense. I like the kind of, it sounds kind of chaos theory-ish to me that you're mixing it up. It's in some ways to your earlier point about just kind of firing a random person, for example, or even hiring a random person is kind of the opposite of, 
of that particular idea is just just go pull some bum out of the crowd and don't hire him by your process. You know, just add him to the team. Why know, not? What random hiring actually might not be a bad idea. You know, yeah. random. You know, we there's in the West there's kind of a negative view of arranged marriages, but actually a lot of arranged marriages work, and maybe the reason why they work is because they are so random. <laughs> because two people have to get to know each other, and it's not already based on their on their own biases of what they're attracted to, and so and sometimes these biases of who we're attracted to actually leads us down the the wrong road. So I have people who come to me constantly and say, you know, I end up dating the same kind of guys, or I end up dating the same kind of women, and it never works because I feel this attraction. So you have to kind of undo that attraction, yeah. and so practicing this sort of basic not doing can help you then make larger decisions, be aware of... And so your not doing is not like the null context, it's the opposite context. It's like if you did A, then do B. So like there's a Seinfeld episode with Costanza where, I can't remember what it is exactly, but it's basically just he does the opposite and he winds up being extremely successful at everything (laughs) he does because he's such a loser. Yeah, it's not just the opposite, it's everything, think of it mathematically as A and not A. Not A is all the other alphabet. It's yeah, not true. It's not. It's it's everything else. Sure, just else. It's yeah, else. else. Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, one method I've uh, I've come up with for catalyzing react, realizations in people and helping them uh, be more innovative is to just ask them to look at something from the perspective of a different person. When I've spoken to software developers about interface issues, I ask them, imagine if you're just some ordinary, average white collar office worker how would you look at this situation or how, what, what would you think to do in this situation? And suddenly it becomes really easy to explain to them why certain things should be done a, a certain way or why this change should be made. And, um, well, Steve, you know, there's a whole uh, psychological discipline to that, psychodrama and uh, things of that nature. There was that, uh, that guy several years back who was doing the... the uh, the make the fictional conversations, you know, he was inspired by the ventriloquist dummy, how the, the ventriloquist said that, you know, when the dummy opens his mouth, I have no idea what he's going to say because it's, it is basically another person living inside your head. Yeah. I, I think that's interesting. Probably not a good idea in the long run. <laughs> Don't man, confuse yourself too much. Right, 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 right. I mean, but, but, but what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I, 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 yeah, I think it'd be good to hear different voices. I mean, not to hear voices, but to hear different aspects of yourself, to allow those to arise. But in order to do that, you have to let go of the old, and you have to, you have to let the new arise. And sometimes that feels like pretending. So a lot of drama, you mentioned psychodrama, sometimes to do something different, we have to pretend like we can do it. We have to pretend even interest to practice whatever's new, because it might seem so foreign and, and, and sort of against what we normally do. And, and that's very hard to get people to do that. But if they can do that, the pretending after a while can almost become automatic and then also a new behavior. Yeah. That, that's interesting, Steve, because, I mean, essentially the doing something different, you know, uh, exercise or, or whatever is, is a kind of counterintuitive in the business world because we're always trying to work towards systems, efficiency, that sort of thing. But it, what you're saying kind of reminds me of... Uh, article I, I read a couple of years ago that was basically talking about like it's talking about memory and why you know when you're a kid time just seems to take forever and then as you become an adult and you kind of uh-huh. develop your patterns and and habits time just flies by and it was basically going back to that you know when you're younger everything's a new experience you're creating mm-hmm. new neural patterns and connections yes. and then we fall into these habits and essentially we become an autopilot 80 percent of the stuff we do from the way we drive home to how we get dressed, yada, yada. And they're basically saying, do those small things and be much more intentional about it. And you'll find that like, you're, you're pay much more attention to things. Time will go slower. You're, you're trying new things, developing new, right. new the, connections. Yeah, I think yeah. the code word used now is mindful. There's all this stuff about right. mindfulness, mindfulness training yeah. and meditation. And I mean, I think that's interesting, but I, I think the added part is not just to become aware, but actually to do different things. Yeah. Because you could become aware of what you always are doing, but yet not do anything different. Co-creativity versus coexisting. It's kind of, yeah, it's easy to coexist, but you can still kind of, if you can figure out how to co-create, you're you're beyond coexisting. If if you can figure out how to tolerate the person in a coexisting sense, okay, 
but wouldn't you rather co-create and actually do something collaboratively together that creates mutual benefit and interest? And mm -hmm. you're, you're becoming intentional about what you do, not just running on autopilot. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, I think we covered a lot of really great, great territory here today. Thanks to my guests, uh, software developer and entrepreneur Andrew Single with Scenario Technology, uh, Christian Harris with C-Town Media, and Steve Kubacki, a clinical psychologist living in Seattle. Uh, thanks, thanks for all of our listeners, and we hope you enjoyed our conversation today about developing and managing products and services. Next month, our podcast will be about selling and marketing them, which is an entirely different skill. You've been listening to the Abstract Podcast. The creator and host of this podcast is Eric Veal. It was recorded, engineered, and produced by Christian Harris. You can contact us and find all our show notes on our website at appsjack.lipson.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N. If you like what you hear on this podcast, let us know by writing us a very nice five-star review on iTunes and subscribing. You can also find out more by going to appsjack.com meetup to get more information on this month's topic and the corresponding meetup group that Eric hosts in Bellevue, Washington each month. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next month for our next episode of the Abstract Podcast. This has been a Seatown Media production. Find out more at seatownmedia.com. S-E-A hyphen townmedia.com. Media